This series on the gift of life has been accompanied by some leaflets. I, have you got, did you get a leaflet in um, your news sheet this morning that says the gift of life? And you may have thought, I don't need that. I've got one already. Because the front of it, that's the one. The front of it looks similar to a couple of others that we've produced. There are going to be six leaflets in this series, and uh, four of them are going to be about these things, summing up what the gift of life in Christ is. Christ gives us freedom, and that's what we're continuing to look at this morning. Christ gives us a fresh start. Actually, not just the once over when we get born again, but he keeps offering us forgiveness, the ability to start afresh with him. This is wonderful, wonderful good news. Uh, The gift of life includes friendship with God. Actually, we could equally well say being in his family, but we get to be close to him, securely close to him. Get not just to talk to him in prayer, but to have him speak to us as well. And as we spoke earlier, when he speaks to us, we come alive. That's what his word is like. And lastly, we'll be looking at what it is to follow Christ. What a wonderful, wonderful privilege to follow Jesus in taking up his cross. Isn't that amazing? It's not just that he saves the world, but he says, come and join me. Let's do some stuff together. That too is part of the gift of life. So these are the different things that we're looking at. We're still on freedom. And four of the leaflets are about these four different things. But for each of these different areas, we're going to look at it from a couple of different angles. On the one hand, we're going to take time to make sure we've understood for ourselves what that aspect of the gospel about Jesus really mean? What does it mean for us to be free? What does it mean that we can be friends with God? Are we living in the fullness of what's offered to us? But we're also going to think about the call to make disciples and the fact that we, as was being, I think Graham was sharing and praying out about overflowing Jesus says, freely you've received, freely give. Whatever we've received from God, we can share with other people. And so we're going to be talking about that too. There are the two other leaflets in this series are about those two things. The summary of the theology, but that was number one. The one that's been handed out this morning, number two, is about the fact that we can share what God's freely given to us with other people. So um, hopefully you won't read that all through my preaching Um. There we go. Two, three weeks ago, we started this series with Steve Thomas talking about uh, sort of an overall picture of the theology of the gospel. And uh, it was quite theological. Lots of facts about what the Bible teaches us about what Jesus has done. This morning, I'm unashamedly being much more practical. And the focus this morning is inevitably going to touch on what Christ has done for us, but the focus is going to be on how we can help, as the first slide said, helping others find freedom. This, I'm excited about this morning, actually. Uh, I find myself uncommonly excited about this morning because it is such good news, and 
the message that I've got to share, which just comes from the pages of the New Testament, is going to help all of us to share that freedom with other people. And actually, there's going to be a wave of fresh freedom that's going to go out from this morning into the lives of, well, first of all, amongst us, blessing one another. It's not all just about going out there. There's ways in which we can help one another to get free from things, but then flowing out from there as well. First of all, let me do a very brief recap of what the New Testament says about freedom, theology of freedom. First of all, I need my Bible at some point, and it's blue, and it's there. Great. Uh, First of all, the New Testament is really clear. Jesus himself says that he paid for our freedom. One of the aspects of what happened at the cross was that Jesus was paying a price. He described it as a ransom payment. That's like what's given to kidnappers in order to let their hostage go free. And in the ancient world, it was what was paid to slave owners so that their slaves would be set free. And Jesus says that his death on the cross is a payment just like that, so that the slavery, the containment that we experience, we're set free from. And it doesn't depend on our ability to jailbreak. It's a payment that Christ himself has made for us, and that means that there's really no question over whether it's going to work. Because he's done everything that's needed. Brilliant. Mark 10, verse 45 says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What good news. As Steve said a few weeks ago, that freedom, and as Keith, these are the verses that Keith read this morning before Jake's baptism, that freedom is first and foremost a freedom from sin. To put it another way, it's not a freedom to do what we want to do, it is the freedom to do what God wants to do. Which actually, when we start out in life, we find ourselves not ever so free to do what God wants us to do. We lack the faith, we lack the motivation. We don't understand it. We don't want to do it. We're not free to live righteously. We're not free to, li- to live in all the good that God's will has for us. We're contained within our own selfish will, which the Bible describes as our sinfulness. And so the first thing is a freedom from sin. Jesus died so that we would be set free from that sin. Uh, C.S. Lewis describes the moment of his conversion going up, the Headington, going up Headington Hill on a bus uh, as one of the ways he described it was like a lobster taking off its shell, this thing that had, he'd felt constrained forever by something that encircled him and held him tight. But in the moment in which God broke into his life and brought him into relationship with him, it was like that came off And he discovered a kind of spaciousness that he'd never known before. Freedom. Freedom from sin. It's also freedom from Satan. Ha. 
the Apostle John wrote in his first letter, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, I need to pause slightly here, because I don't know how you get on with talk of Satan, the devil, the evil one, Lucifer, and all of that. Um, There's all kinds of nonsense spoken about Satan. One thing that's true is that he is the father of lies. And so it's no surprise that someone whose very identity is as a liar would be surrounded by confusion. I'm not going to try to uh, swat away all of the deception and lies one at a time, but say a number of things that are true about Satan and evil as I go through this morning. And I hope that that will provide... Uh, something clear and solid in the face of whatever other confusion exists. One thing's for sure, that evil really is evil. Having heard politicians describe nations as being evil, and you know the axis of terror and those sorts of things, perhaps can make us a little bit nervous about labelling people as bad. But you know what? We should not hold shy of labelling Satan as bad. Because he is a destroyer, a robber, with nothing in him that is good. Evil really is evil. The Son of Man came to destroy everything about the devil. And, to put it another way, God's love leads to warfare. God's love leads to warfare. So this aspect of the gospel, the gift of life in Christ, it's about the dynamic power of God in our lives. The dynamic power of God to sort things out, to set us free, to resolve things that we could never resolve. Jesus brought the dynamic power of God to set people free from sin. And Satan, there's lots of examples of that throughout the Gospels. There's a few verses if you want to check out what I'm saying. You know what? The early church, that's just a few examples as well, did the same. Jesus passed this ministry on from what he'd been doing himself to his followers, and so can we. There's a promise at the end of Mark's gospel that we can see people set free from the evil one and from all that he would want to do. So that's what we're looking at this morning. The three headings I'm going to share some things under are understanding the enemy, general understanding of the enemy, how specifically to recognize demonic strongholds And then very practically, how to pray for people that they would be set free. So that's where we're heading. First of all, then, understanding understanding the battle I've put up there. That'll do. First thing to recognize is that our enemy is already submitted to godly authority. Sometimes we have this idea, maybe foster... I mean, <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder how much of our understanding of uh, 
angels and demons of spiritual powers is informed more by Hollywood than the New Testament. And there's any number of films in which the demons seem to be quite cool and actually really quite powerful, and there's a real risk that they might win. I have to say, they're not cool at all, ever. And uh, there's no chance of them winning. Because Jesus died and gave his life as an effective ransom payment that has cancelled any kind of claim or hold that any demonic force or Satan himself might want to claim over the lives of God's people. When we talk about spiritual warfare and God's love leading to warfare, it's not at all like a horror film um, where someone's desperately struggling to get free from something that seems like it might overtake them. It's not about some priest with crucifix and holy water and maybe some garlic for good measure and demons that spew green gloop. It's just... In reality, the Bible says, 1 Peter 3, verse 22, all demons are submitted to Christ. And by the way, demons cannot possess people. Possession, demonic possession, is not a biblical phrase. Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it the world, and all who live in it. Who's the owner? God. Can the devil own you? Can he possess you? No. God is the possessor of all the earth, all who are in it. The New Testament uses some other phrases to describe the activities of the evil one. Actually, the word that's most often used is a straightforward word that kind of assumes we know what demons do and doesn't really help us understand. It's just demonized. If demons are around, you're demonized. And that doesn't really tell us much of what they do, and we can't read too much more into it. Elsewhere, it sometimes talks about somebody having an unclean spirit or being troubled by a spirit. Dave Devonish, who has written an excellent book called Demolishing Strongholds, which if you want to read up on all of this a bit more, it will be worth you getting, says this, demonization indicates a situation where an evil spirit has got hold of someone's personality or physical body to a greater or lesser extent. That's quite vague, I guess. It's biblically vague. That's about what the Bible says. I'll say it again. Demonization indicates a situation where an evil spirit has got a hold on someone's personality or on their physical body to a greater or lesser extent. Whatever that extent is, and whatever aspect of someone's person is subject to that evil influence, whatever the extent, we have authority in Jesus' name to sort it out. That's how it works, because the enemy is already defeated. The end of the story is Jesus wins. That's how it goes. The enemy is already submitted to godly authority. Secondly, 
I need to turn here to some verses I've not got printed in my notes. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And Paul explains that this battle is actually a battle that is for our minds. If all of this talk of demons seems a little bit less than normally intellectual, being here in Oxford, well, actually, it's all to do with what's going on in our minds. Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 4, the weapons we fight with in this spiritual warfare... The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. What's a stronghold? Well, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. This battlefield is precisely a battlefield for our minds. A stronghold is a secure building built within uh, a walled city. So there's already some defense in place in the walls of the city or the ramparts of the castle. But as a further place of security, many walled cities in the ancient world and many castles had a further stronghold or keep into which you could retreat, so that if the outer defences were breached, there was a secure place into which you could run, and if the invaders overtook the rest of your property, well, eventually they'd go away, and you could come back out and recolonize your land, so you would be safe in the face of this invasion. And uh, that's the picture that Paul uses here, it's about how he's, because he's writing to the church about strongholds that are there in the church. And he says, God has come and invaded your lives. Actually, these people have become followers of Christ, children of God. God has invaded their lives, but there are pockets of resistance. There are places where the kingdom of darkness has just backed into a corner and kept safe sort of in the hope that one day they might be able to mount a a counter-attack, if you like. And Paul says, you know what? We can demolish them too. But they're thoughts that are there in our minds. I'll kind of come back to that just a little bit more in a moment. But how that operates actually in the church... But I want to say something clear about demonic activity and mental health. Because if this is all about what's going on in our minds, one of the things that has happened is that people have often confused mental health with demonic oppression of some sort, and sometimes treated people with mental health issues as demonized, in a way that's quite inappropriate. So I think we need to acknowledge that and the dangers of it. Not all mental health issues involve demonic activity. They really don't. On the other hand, it's rare to find demonic activity 
that leaves people's mental health intact. So there is something to keep in mind that where someone is struggling with poor mental health, it would be wrong to jump to the conclusion that this is the work of Satan in any very specific sense. Maybe that they just need some antidepressants. as God's provision for their wholeness. But equally, it would be daft to assume that Satan's got nothing to do with it, because he robs and destroys, and where there's been the theft of a sound mind, he's, he, he's interested in that, and we ought to be aware of these possibilities. My father-in-law, who I mentioned from time to time, having had a very productive ministry of all sorts, um, used to go in regularly to pray in the local mental health hospital in Gloucestershire where they lived. And some of you will have heard me say this before, but one day one of the consultants came to him and said, um, Pastor Duncan, what we do here is we medicate to alleviate people's symptoms. Whatever it is you do, what you do is address the root causes. So, I hope that's clear enough. There is some potential that these things are linked in individuals' lives, but it's not all to be reduced to the work of Satan. We value doctors for what they bring. And in an ideal world, what we see is medics and people with spiritual gifts and perspective working hand-in-hand to bring the different benefits that they have to offer to people who are in distress. Sometimes that's possible. I have to say, even between churches like ours and the NHS, sometimes when people are really in distress and struggling with their mental health, we find medical professionals who understand something of that perspective and with whom it's possible to talk things out and work things through really, really very helpfully for people... Um, it's not always that straightforward. It rather depends who the, who the doctors involved are. And to be fair, they've probably had some pretty poor experiences of churches in the past that might make them a little bit suspicious of our wisdom, to say the least. Here's a picture that I hope will help further elucidate things. This is a rat, and it's supposed to, well, it is on, some, on a pile of rubbish. It, this, in this picture, the rubbish is the wrong thinking in our lives. That's the rubbish. And when God breaks into our lives, he clears a whole load of it out, but we all know that there's still a lifetime of allowing God to come and clear out more of the rubbish thinking that's there. Where you find rubbish in the streets, you find rats. If there were no rubbish there would be no rats. If there were no wrong thinking in our heads, there'd be nowhere for the enemy of our souls to gain purchase and gain any kind of entry, nothing to sustain him. And so the main thing that we do, and we do it here Sunday by Sunday by Sunday and encourage everybody also daily, daily, daily to get into the scriptures and allow the truth of God's word to be the plumb line for our thinking so that bit by bit by bit by bit 
we clear out the rubbish thinking and we're left with clean, godly thinking. That's, what, that's the main thing that we're about, is getting it clean. But there's an understanding that where there remains rubbish, there are rats. And sometimes you have to, you have to get rid of the rats before you can get in and clear up the rubbish. And so sometimes there is a need to deal directly with the demonic strongholds in order, because they are holding up the process that would otherwise be taking place of God changing our thinking and setting us right. The third thing, uh, I've jumped in the wrong order. It's just, I've said this already, the battle is in God's people. The picture of strongholds ought to show us that. The picture of strongholds is uh, of a place that's already been invaded and taken over, but that there's a pocket of resistance. That in no way describes the average person in this world. That describes well the life of a Christian who still needs God's further work in their lives. And this ministry of, the word that we can use for it is deliverance, deliverance from evil. This ministry of deliverance is very much for Christians. The reference that I've given there is of Jesus when he's on holiday um, by the sea with his disciples in Tyre and Sidon. You know, he, he's on holiday some local person comes to him and says, my daughter needs deliverance. And he says, no, I'm on holiday. He says, no, I, I came for the lost sheep of Israel. They're some miles over there. I didn't, come to do, I didn't come to do ministry to you. This is not my workplace. That's what we, I, I'm, I'm translating that a little bit to modern parlance, but that's what's going on in that story. And the woman presses in and says... Yeah, but, she says, yeah, but, even the dogs get the bread, you know, the, the, the food that the children leave. And he goes, oh, very good. And he delivers her child of her demon anyway. And it's not a cut and dried argument, but it fits together with this understanding that Paul has of strongholds, that Jesus came to offer deliverance to the people of God to the nation of Israel. He wasn't going out. If you were looking for demons in the ancient world, Israel was the one place where they had least influence. Because it was where God was dwelling and active, and yet it was there that he came to set people free from the work of Satan. Okay. There's a little bit of an understanding of the picture of the battle that we're facing. How do we recognize when something in our own lives or the lives of people that we care for is actually a stronghold of the kind that I'm talking about? I have to say, just occasionally, just occasionally, it is really obvious. Um, our friend Ali Kay lives in a place in Derby where it's a great working class area where people are very straight up about what's going on and every now and again, and he lives in a former vicar's house, so people think he's the vicar even though he's not, although he's becoming one now, so that's complicated. Anyway, occasionally people knock on his door and say, you need to come and pray in my house. Furniture's flying around and no one's touching it. Can you come and do something about it? So, I mean, just occasionally, though, you know, you, you do sometimes have things where um, things that get, have been made much of in the horror movies 
there's a sort of little glimmer of, you'd have to be stupid not to see there's something going on here. That's not normally how things are, because Satan is the father of lies, and he loves to cover things up in confusion so that they can't be addressed. Anyway, four things. There are here, sometimes, sometimes when somebody understands that they're coming into the presence of God, which might be coming into a church gathering, entering into a time of worship, perhaps just going into a space that is often used for worship, or even just in your own personal life, setting yourself to pray, sometimes people experience things that show that there's some kind of reaction going off at that point. Uh, Sometimes people find that at the point of trying to enter into God's presence, they find their minds just taken up with blasphemous thoughts. They don't know where they came from and they don't want them, but there's something kicking off. Um, For other people, sometimes there are panic attacks, uh, just a sort of blackness comes over them, fits of rage, even physical manifestations. Sometimes people just cannot sit still in worship or find themselves suddenly sleepy in a way that they never otherwise are. Sometimes just those kinds of signs that something's going on here. As I approach God, this is not straightforward. There's something more going on spiritually. Now, all of those things can happen for some reason other than demonic activity. It's not like you come in on a Sunday morning, find yourself yawning in the second thong, second thong, second song. In the uh, forgive me, forgive me. Uh, you find yourself yawning in the second song. It does not mean that you are being oppressed by a devil, especially if you are up till two in the morning or some such thing. Um, this is not a cut and dry thing. And I'm just going to build up a bit of a picture here for you that actually there are a number of things that are suggestive that there's a stronghold at work. And that's just one of them. Again, sometimes that, it's sometimes clearer than other times. If you go to... Um, say to Nepal, where there are lots and lots of Christians, praise God, there are lots of Christians now, but most of whom were Hindus, a really common experience that they will describe is that when they pray, just get on with praying in the normal sort of a way, they feel like someone's poured liquid fire inside them and it's not nice and it burns. And I've a number of times there had people come up to me and say, please, could you pray for me? Whenever I pray, it's like there's fire. And I'm thinking, fire, Holy Spirit. And I'm going, great! (laughs) And then they look really confused. (laughs) No, no, it's not good. It's actually um, something that for them um, is a sign of some demonic tie from something that took place earlier in life. It's rarely as clear as that here in the UK, but it's, that's the sort of thing we're talking about, that on approaching God, there's trouble. Um, a second thing is that there are certain what we might call common gateways, a really obvious one. In Ephesians 4, it says, do not let the sun go down on your anger, don't give the devil a foothold. Actually, if you continue in unforgiveness, if you hold grudges against people and don't forgive them, 
Scripture says that's a foothold for the devil. It's a way in for him into our lives. And the reason I've put those two circles like that is, you know what, if you find both of those things going on, then it's actually becoming more likely that there is something here that needs some spiritual battle in order to bring freedom. There are other sorts of gateways. Um, Not many people do this, but actually if you have invoked demons to come and be part of your life, uh, that's a bother. Uh, That would be a a gateway for demonic activity. Um, The first thing I ever did with Graham Hipwell, um, when Graham and Helen moved to Oxford, we went and prayed for a young woman who was living just off St. Clement's, whose father was a self-styled warlock who ran a coven somewhere locally. I don't know if warlocks have covens. I don't care what they call themselves, frankly. But they certainly spent a lot of time asking Satan to be involved in their lives. And this poor woman had become a Christian, but it was a heck of a battle. I mean, we prayed for her, and just pain appeared in her body. We said that should pain, pain in the shoulder stop in Jesus' name, and a pain would appear somewhere else in her body. And she was having quite a harsh time of it all. Praise God she got set free entirely from it, although not before God provided someone else other than Graham and I to pray with her. It was, for us, it was a learning experience. For her, it was a painful experience, and then we pointed her to someone that could help there. And then we've learned a bit more since then, I have to say. Um, but she, there was a really obvious gateway in her life. Her father had dedicated her to Satan, um, some other things that, if, they, if they've been there in your life, you know what? They may well have provided the devil a foothold. Use of mind-altering drugs. That's not helpful. Sometimes moments of trauma prove to be gateways. Um, having an intimate relationship with someone that you know really is demonized. These are things that are, go deep, actually, They're all really deep things, spiritually, that can inflict deep wounds and give room for the devil. So if you've got both of those sorts of things going on, you start to think, well, there's probably something to pray for. But actually, there's another thing which the New Testament talks about, which is the gift of discernment. It's listed there in 1 Corinthians 12, the ability to distinguish between spirits. You know, it is possible, there is a gift that God gives where you can look at someone and say, that person has an unclean spirit that is doing this and that to them, and you can pray, bang, and it would go. The first time, you know, we've got some friends in Sheffield, a church there that we've connected with. First time I went to one of their conferences, together with the other uh, leaders, uh, elders in the church, we were being prayed for by a team of their prophetic prayers, and uh, one of them suddenly points at me and says, critical spirit, out now in the name of Jesus. At which point, I more or less collapsed, these guys were there, I more or less collapsed. It's like, whoa, what is that? And some- something left me. And I wasn't, I wasn't asking for I'd not been yawning in the worship. I'm sure I hadn't. <laughs> I didn't tell him about how I used to play Dungeons and Dragons when I was a kid. I didn't, I didn't give him... It was just by the Spirit of God. That gift exists. 
Most of us are not quite so practiced in that gift as this particular guy was. I remember the first time I really tried to operate in that, there was someone, a couple that Bev and I were caring for pastorally. She was stuck with something. We were praying for them. I thought, oh, I'm going to... We need to name what this is. I'm going to pray, God, give me some revelation. I'm going to pray. And I thought God spoke to me. And I said, I believe you've got a spirit of rebellion. I think, I don't know know if I pointed my finger. I probably did. Spirit of rebellion. Uh, Anyway, she was offended. I was wrong. (laughs) Doesn't help you submit to your leaders when they accuse you of being rebellious and they're wrong. (laughs) Hey-ho. Anyway... Um, there's enough maturity around that thankfully they came back a little while later to, to talk to us further and we prayed further and it became clear that there was a spirit of rejection operating in her life. You know, it's kind of the first few letters are right, that were right, weren't they? <laughs> As I say, we, we've learned some things over the years. But for most of us, the gift of discernment does not operate with such clarity that it's wise to use it alone. But it's rather like another factor... But if, in addition to seeing some of these other things, you also see, I think the Holy Spirit's saying something here. It starts to add up to a picture. There's one other factor I'd like to throw in, which is this. When discipline doesn't work. Because, you know, the normal thing for the Christian is, we've got the Holy Spirit living in us. God speaks a word. We pray. He gives us grace. And we're changed. That's the normal thing. The normal thing is God speaks, we respond, we're changed, on we go in life. Now, sometimes it's a little bit more tricky, and we receive a word from God, this thing needs to change. Okay, righty-ho, I'll pray about that, I'll give it a go. You know what, I fouled up again. That is not the point at which to assume there be demons. That's the point at which to talk to one of your friends and say, I think I need some accountability. I think that would be really helpful because that might motivate me a bit more and help me to stick with what God has said to me to do. Um, Sometimes we can want God to sort out everything in our lives with his dynamic power, bang, it's gone. More often than not, he says, I'd rather you walked with me. Can we we work this out together? Rather than me hitting you, can we walk Uh, I remember a young man in the church who Steve Thomas and I had to sit down with and tell him, how do I put this? Uh, well, to keep his pants on, basically, with, with, uh, with women in the church. That was the issue. Um, and we had to tell him very clearly that certain behaviour was not acceptable. That's... His story was that when he was born again, he was a drunkard, Uh, who smoked and had really no self-control sexually. That was his story. When he got born again, in the moment he got born again, God delivered him of his alcoholism and he never wanted to smoke another cigarette again. Gone. And so since that time, he'd basically just been waiting for God to do the same thing in every area of his life. So whenever he fouled up, in his sexuality, he was like, well, God, when you, whenever you want to do it. But no joining together with God to say, 
What is it I need to choose? What is it I need to change? To whom do I need to be accountable? What help might I need? And actually, that's the more normal thing in the Christian life, is to be part of a community who support you to change towards the godliness that God has planned for us. So the last thing here is, you start off trying out discipline and accountability. If that doesn't work, then you think, well, there's some kind of constraint here, and maybe there's a need to be prayed to be set free from something. I need to move on to actually how we pray for people. First of all, this kind of prayer is best learned in apprenticeship. The first people that Bev and I, the first is a girl that Bev and I prayed for, we were caring for. She was falling down in the night with panic attacks. She couldn't sleep. I mean, her life was just in pieces. And we knew that there was something going on. We didn't know what it was. We took her with us to Stephen Lorraine Thomas, prayed together. They did all the praying, pretty much. We watched, we learnt in apprenticeship how to be a blessing to this girl who was set free. Um, Changed life through that one evening's prayer. Always done in a team. Don't get into praying for people. Where there's this kind of issue to deal with, don't, get, don't pray one-to-one. Just don't do it. Jesus sent the disciples out to cast out demons and heal the sick in twos. And if they needed to go in two, then we need at least two. Um, secondly, be in a good place yourself with God. Um, the truth is that when we're Christians, we're always in a good place with God. I liked what Jake said earlier. He's been well taught. God always sees me as perfect. True. That's justification right there. And Dave Perry's explaining that from the scriptures next Sunday. Do come back. And yet, in our experience, we doubt that reality of how God sees us sometimes. And it's good for us to talk it all out with God and to keep short accounts with him so that we have a clear conscience so that as we step in to pray in a spiritual battle, we're in a good place without the distractions of suddenly remembering, oh, I do that sin as well. It's just not helpful for you or for the person that you're trying to bless. Thirdly, it helps to have good theology. Now, I'm not talking here about clever theology. I'm not talking about being able to explain eschatology in three points beginning with the same letter, except for the few exceptions that only the really clever people know. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a strong grasp of basic gospel truths so that we're able to spot ungodly beliefs that are allied to to satanic activity. If these strongholds are in our thinking, then the better our, or the more biblical our theology is, the more quickly we'll spot when things aren't quite right in someone's thinking and be able to draw attention to the things that need to change for them. Spiritual warfare starts with thinking the truth, not with commanding spirits. Um, Fourthly, never rush. I keep mentioning Steve Thomas. I'll do it again. There was the previous rector at St. Ebbs, before Vaughan, um, phoned um, Steve Thomas up one night saying, Steve, I have someone here with me. Um, She seems to be manifesting demons. Um, Thought you might have a bit more experience of this than me. Uh, What would you do? 
Um, to which Steve said, well, it's, it's half nine at night. I, wouldn't, I just wouldn't start now. You've got authority to bind it up. Bind it up now. Tell her to come back in the daytime. And the rector said, oh, very good. Thank you. Put the phone down. <laughs> Presumably went away and did it. So there's no need to rush. There's just no need to rush. It's much better to do things well, uh, meaning that it, things can be done in a way that is peaceable for people rather than all stressed. Um, where are we on? Fifthly, fasting. Fasting's good. Um, if we're going to pray to see something really shift, um, I would normally pr- fast for that day at least, um, possibly for... Th- I don't know why I never fast for two days, either one or three. I don't know why. Anyway, three's good. Um, anyway, another thing to do, check that they want to be free. This is really important. Some people don't want to be free. They quite like it. They've dug their heels in to, you know, actually, you know, this particular kind of lifestyle, I know it's not what God wants, and it'd be nice if he delivered me from it, but I don't really want to change. In Matthew 12, Jesus says this, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and doesn't find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That's how it will be with this wicked generation. Jesus is saying, where people are, there's a wickedness that stands against the will of God. And people say, I'm not bothered whether I'm living God's way or not. Then if you send the one demon out, you're just going to cause them more trouble. Because Jesus teaches they're going to go away and just bring a load more trouble back. There's a story, I think it's in Acts 16, isn't there, of the woman with a spirit who goes round behind the Apostle Paul shouting and saying, you're really great, you are. That's the right, isn't it? More or less. And uh, eventually Paul gets fed up and cast the demon out from her, and then they get all kinds of trouble um, with you know, the people that were making money from her and so on. You think, why didn't Paul do that the first day? I mean, she's been following him with this, you know, this um, fortune-telling spirit, causing them trouble day after day, and eventually he gets fed up and sends the spirit. You think, well, why didn't you just get on with it at the start? Save yourself the bother. Out of compassion for the woman, well, Paul knew what Jesus had taught, which is that unless there's a bigger process going on of God drawing someone into relationship with himself, you can pray for them, but it's not going to do them good in the long run. Unless that wickedness is changed, unless they're brought into a relationship with God where the Holy Spirit is available to them, then it's not going to do them good In the long run, check that somebody wants to be set free. Practically, that means going through a list of what they want to be, that they need to be set free from. And I mean, we would normally, if we're praying for people, say, We're not going to, we can't pray this for you. If you want to be set free, say from anger, we need to hear you praying 
I renounce anger, I repent of it, it's wrong, I don't want it. I've chosen it and I don't want to choose it anymore. You know, we want to hear that clearly before we start praying for a spirit of anger to go. And sometimes submitting to Christ's lordship is painful, actually. At that point, you know, these, these strongholds have become our friends after you know, we've got used to them. That's not a straightforward process. And that's one reason why we want to allow time and space, not start at half nine, ten o'clock at night, and end up having to rush people to do things that are actually quite a challenge. Next, ask for the Holy Spirit's help, listen for his prompts, seek that gift of discernment. Really, it helps. I would say that all the times I can think of that we've prayed for people in this way, the key moment of freedom comes when there's some revelation insight from the Holy Spirit and there's a certain sort of clarity. This is the thing, this is the verse of scripture to speak, this is the thing to name um, and it's like a, there's like a spiritual wave comes, or a wave of power, not a spiritual wave, a wave of power from the Holy Spirit that's expressed through the prayer and the proclamation as he inspires that... <laughs> Keith's nodding. Good. Uh, commands the Spirit to go in the name of Jesus. No need to shout, demons aren't deaf. Don't need to name the Spirit. You know, sometimes you get... You know, a deaf and dumb spirit or a a python spirit or different things you hear named. You don't need to name things. Demons don't need to be told what kind of demon they are before they'll listen, because if you remember, they're all submitted to Jesus anyway. Um, But it can be really helpful to help the person that you're blessing understand what's happening to them. Um, Invite the Holy Spirit to fill the person. And finally, follow up. It's not all quite done, when the amen is spoken, any more than a healing process is finished when you're wheeled out of theatre. And that's why we, I, w- I would really love to see this kind of ministry going on within the context of the local congregation and not going off to specialists. Some, I mean, there are people who are gifted with a greater gift of discernment that really helps in the process, but... To have that disconnected from the church family that will walk with you, that will, will bathe your wounds as you're recovering, and come and feed you whilst you regain strength or whatever it may, you know, don't want to push the analogy too far, but it's better to be in family. And if we played a part in seeing somebody set free from something, believe that we have a responsibility then to walk with them and to help them live in the freedom that God has for them. Okay, lots of instruction there. I hope that's been helpful. Um, I believe it has been, actually. Response. What do we do with all of that? Well, firstly, I'm aware that if what that I've said has left you wondering whether you've got something that you need to be set free from then I'm just going to allow for a moment's quiet in which you, I'm going to ask you to get out your mobile phone. Actually, can everyone get out their mobile phones now? Because otherwise, getting out your phone is going to look like a sign of demonization, which is really not going to... <laughs> everyone get your phone out. You can get rare permission to fiddle with mobile phones in the church service going on right now. Um, what I'd like to suggest is if you know that there's something that you need some help with, just send a text now 
to someone that you, if you have a personal pastor in the church here or if there's some other leader that you trust and know and have the mobile number for, um, just send them a text now saying, we need to talk about something. If you've not got anyone out, that's my mobile number. If you don't know who else to text, text me now. I'm just going to take a moment to be quiet and allow for that to happen. Oh, I see. Now, my phone's on silent. Father God, if there's anyone here now who's actually, this has stirred something up and there's turbulence, I pray in Jesus' name for peace to come to that turbulence. I pray for faith. Uh, I bind in Jesus' name any spirit that is seeking right now to raise confusion to prevent redemptive action. In Jesus' name I pray. Okay, good. Uh, And then lastly, the focus of this morning has not been so much on what we can receive, although I'm sure there's been all kinds of content around that to, to, to benefit from, but actually on sharing the gift of life with others. So what I want to do in just a moment is for anybody who is up for sharing freedom, bringing freedom to others, I'd like to pray for you for two things. Firstly, that you would have confidence in the authority that you have. And also that God would increase in you the gift of discernment to see what's going on spiritually. So if you like those two things, not just as play things, or wouldn't that be fun, but to be a blessing to other people, would you uh, just take a moment? And if you're able to stand, stand. If you're not able to stand, just raise a hand and uh, I will pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Jesus, you're brilliant in every way. And it's amazing that you did your death on the cross just did so much, so powerful, a ransom payment to bring freedom. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you gave authority to your disciples to act on your behalf. And I pray for every one of my sisters and brothers here right now that you would send your spirit to bring to them a fresh confidence in the authority that's given to them. Lord, thank you, Holy Spirit, that you remind us of the truth. I pray that you would drop right now scriptures into the minds of those of us who are gathered here that would underline for us the authority that we have in you, giving us confidence, reminding us, showing us who we really are, what it is that you've given us to do. Thank you, Lord. Yeah, and I pray too, as we're commanded to desire spiritual gifts, I pray too for this gift of discernment to be able to distinguish between spirits, to see what it is that's going on spiritually so that we can play our part in seeing people set free. Lord, I ask that out of this morning there'd be a whole new wave of spiritual freedom in which mindsets are altered for good. Patterns of life are altered for good. Lord, I pray that there will be a wave of holiness and godliness that would sweep through us as a congregation because of what you do. And I pray too that that sanctity would spread out beyond us 
that we really would be salt and light in the society in which you've placed us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.